Welcome to another episode of Out the Rabbit Hole here on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. We're also on the web at KUCI.org. I'm Robert Larson. This is our uh, December <laughs> December 20th, 2007 edition of the show. It's 4.10 on the clock. We're getting started a little bit late today, but uh, no worries. It's great stuff. Uh, and before we get started with everything, I will remind you real quick that the opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of the KUCI staff or management or the UC Board of Regents. And if you want to give me some feedback on the show, that's rglarson at KUCI.org. And you can also catch me on MySpace. That's MySpace.com slash OutTheRabbitHole. The news website, rawstory.com, is in the midst of a shocking five-part story called The Permanent Republican Majority. This series deals with the state of Alabama and allegations and evidence of election fraud, the framing of an innocent man, a kangaroo court, serious corruption, and political dirty tricks. Though this story takes place in the uh, heart of the Deep South, its connections to Washington and the Bush administration are also deep. Carl Rove, Alberto Gonzalez, and the U.S. attorney's firing scandal all figure into this ugly drama. My special guest today is the investigative reporter behind the Permanent Republican Majority Series and the managing editor for Investigative News at Raw Story, Larissa Alexandrovna. Ms. Alexandrovna's work has been uh, also been featured at Alternate and the Huffington Post and been referenced in most major news outlets. You can as well catch her blogging at www.atlargely.com. Larissa Alexandrovna, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Uh, it's uh, my pleasure. I have been uh, reading this story and waiting for the next installment every week or so, uh, or as it's been uh, unfolding, and it's really a powerful story, and it needs to uh, get out there. So uh, regular listeners to this show know that not only were the 2000 and 2004 presidential election results uh, highly questionable at best, but that the 2006 congressional elections appear to have had a skimming of a few percentage points from uh, Democrat to Republican, and that in 2002, Max Cleland seems to have had his Senate seat uh, stolen from him in Georgia. But another 2002 race that has evidence and accusations of hanky-panky is the governor's race in Alabama. Larissa, could you, as a sort of jumping-off point, talk about what happened on election night 2002 in Alabama? Sure. What happened was the the incumbent w was uh, Democrat uh, Don Siegelman. He was running against Republican um, Bob Riley, and Siegelman was winning. By all accounts, uh, the polls were coming in. He was winning. He was very popular uh, Democrat in a Republican state, and he had been uh, the only officeholder of all the major state um, positions. So. He, he seemingly won, and sometime during the night, one county, and of course this is reminiscent of any number of similar situations across the country. For example, in Ohio, you had Claremont County having the same kind of problem. But in one county, suddenly, there were additional votes located for Bob Riley, who was then immediately declared the winner the following day. And... Um, when Governor Siegelman and certainly the Alabama election laws required this as well, demanded a recount, 
the ballots were sealed by the then Attorney General, William Pryor. They were sealed uh, so that you needed a court order to have them opened, and obviously they're still sealed. So that's the basic rundown of what happened uh, around that election. There was also allegations of actually a man named Dan Gans who appears to have somehow uh, fiddled with um, the numbers to make them appear for Bob Riley. Uh, but, you know, that allegation is hard to prove. But that's the basic gist of what went wrong with the election there. Yes. Okay. So, and, and this is, I just kind of want to make the listeners sort of understand that this is a thing we've seen. And like you mentioned, Ohio, and, we, we, you know, everybody knows about Florida 2000. And they're right. just have over the last seven years, uh, there have just been so many of these elections where funny things seem to happen in the middle of the night. Votes seem to get switched, or then when we want to look into it, we're not allowed to, or the recount process is very flawed, or people try to stop that. And you have this William Pryor, who is the attorney general there in Alabama, right? Correct. And he uh, stopped. This is kind of a weird thing. It was... was, Sealed the ballot. Yeah. It almost like, was that really legal? I mean, there were people who were saying that that wasn't, right? Correct, correct. And But you needed a court order at that point. And apparently people had a drop. But when you look closer at who Pryor is and what happened, you start to see something really disturbing, you know. Um, and I'm not sure, am I supposed to keep <laughs> well, <laughs> Okay, keep well, so yeah, William Pryor, uh, many people may know his name. He's another one of these infamous uh, Bush uh appointees who had to be brought in on a recess appointment, which is kind of peculiar because the Congress over the last seven years has pretty much rolled over and given Bush almost everything he wants. And so the fact that they seem to not want to confirm this guy and Bush had to put him in on a recess is a little weird, right? Right. On the 11th Circuit, which oversees, uh, you know, Florida, Georgia, and um, obviously Alabama. And so you've got, you know, it's a questionable appointment. But What's even more questionable is that after he seals the ballots, the following April, this is when this recess appointment happens. That it was just from an observational kind of point of view, you know, I'm, I'm speculating, but certainly the the it would appear that there is a quid pro quo here. That you know, you scratch my back, I scratch yours. Whether that's true or not needs to be investigated by Congress. But by appearances, it does appear to be very, very questionable. Um, moreover, this prior um, person, William Pryor, um, it turns out that his 1998 campaign was run by Carl Rove and uh, Bill Canary. Now, Bill Canary was, in 2002, the, the candidates were Don Siegelman and Bob Riley. And Bill Canary was on the Bob Riley campaign as an advisor. Um, so you've got a Bob Riley character appearing in 1998 along with Carl Rove and William Pryor. And then you see Canary and Pryor reappearing in 2002, one running the campaign of, of Bob Riley and one sealing the ballots. It's, it's, again, there's a question of appearance here. Um, so there's that. That doesn't even get into all the other um, <laughs> yeah. really questionable uh, relationships and activities. 
But that's the, the, the basic gist, and we actually had to make a diagram because of the complexities. Yeah, yeah, it's very complex, and you, I, I must say in your writing you've done a very good job of, preventing this, uh, of presenting this very efficiently. And I, I will urge uh, listeners, go to rawstory.com, and they can just uh, do a search on there for the permanent Republican majority in your Actually, whole— Actually, it's on the front page okay. under um, Raw Story Investigates. The, all the three parts already are there. Okay. But they don't have to search. It's right up front. Okay, so stay with us now and listen to what we have to say. But after the show, go and check. Uh, go to rawstory.com, and, and it's a, it, it, the, the diagrams really help. But, yeah, it, it's very weird. You know, Carl Rove, everybody sort of knows about him on the national scene and knows he's this shady character, been involved in a lot of things. And, you know, people, I think, don't always realize that he seems to his, he pops up in all these shady situations in different states in, uh, in, in here in Alabama. And uh, can— well, let's get into that a little more later, but I want to talk about Don Siegelman because okay. uh, the former governor, the one who seemed to have won the race for governor in 2002, he right. was running for re-election at that point, right? In he was running for re-election, that is correct, and he, he won but then apparently lost and couldn't get the votes recounted because they were sealed by obviously a friend of the opponent who was attorney general. Yeah, and there are all the connections there, and you point all that out, and that's right. William, William Pryor. And so now, but the thing is, Don Siegelman is now sitting in prison. So not Correct. only after having the race apparently stolen from him, he's had he's there on these, like, trumped-up charges. I mean, and he's looking a hell of a lot like a political prisoner. So can you go a little bit into that, of, of how these charges, which appear to be trumped up against Siegelman, started out and the people involved and how he ended up in prison? Okay, well, there were two attempts to try to get him out of the way. The first was, and I should mention that the guy who was advising the Bill Riley campaign, Bill Riley's the Republican opponent, the guy who was advising that campaign, his name is Bill Canary, again, just a reminder. And Bill Canary was, ran uh, William Pryor's campaign. William Pryor was the attorney general who sealed the ballots. Bill Canary's wife was the U.S. attorney for the middle, or is, rather, the U.S. attorney for the middle district, appointed by the president. So there's a huge conflict of interest here. In any case, she begins investigating Don Siegelman and um, attempts to bring charges of bribery and corruption and such against him. And the first time around, it's completely thrown out of court, and the judge actually holds the prosecutors in contempt, which I, you know, rarely see. Um, but then um, they kind of, I don't know, there are different things that people have said, you know, as to why... Siegelman ultimately concedes in 2002. You know, one of the speculations is that he was told in no uncertain terms, either you, you know, walk away or we're going to, you know, frame you for it, You know, it's hard to tell. But in any case, um, uh, I'm sorry, I lost my train of thought. <laughs> no, uh, that's okay. So, yeah, they told Siegelman uh, had lost the election, and he just kind of walked away as, as, you know, John Kerry did in 2004. And you're wondering, why did he do that? It seems that something weird w was done here. Right. And, and then and there you... were no charges for, you know, a long time, a couple of years. And all of a sudden he declares uh, his, his bid again. He's going to run again uh, in, for the 2006 seat. So, mind you, nothing's happened in between when, when they first were investigating him and then the charges were thrown out. When he goes to run again, 
32 charges of bribery okay. and corruption are brought up against him in the very in the very region that uh, Leora Canary, who was the wife of Bill Canary. Okay, Larissa, um, you seem to be cutting out every so often. Is uh, oh, I apologize. Is there an issue with the phone or something? Or no, no, we're okay. Okay, I, I'm not sure what that is. But <laughs> okay, but yeah, so go ahead. I'm sorry. Um, so uh, I'm sorry. Okay, so Leora Canary is Bill Canary's wife. She's the U.S. attorney. Right. And she, um, there are 32 charges of bribery and corruption brought up against Siegelman right after he declares, uh, you know, his bid to run again mm-hmm. for the 2006 seat. And all of the charges are in her district, ironically. Um, so once he loses the Democratic primary, um, 25 of those charges disappear. Okay. <laughs> They're done. There's only seven charges left, okay. which are still even questionable. Right. Everyone I've talked to thinks it's laughable that he was even brought to trial, and, but that's the best they could do was those seven. But, so so he lost the, the Democratic primary, and it may have well been because of these charges against him made him look bad, right? Well, one would think that if you have a governor or a candidate brought up on 35 char- uh, charges, you know, with this huge indictment of uh, of bribery and corruption and this and that, yeah, I would think that that would affect the election. So once he loses the primary, he um, all 25 of those charges are dropped because 25 of those charges were completely out of thin air, and the seven are so circumstantial and ridiculous. But that's all they had, and they had to they had to go with something because they had been obviously so visibly going after him. They couldn't just drop all the charges. Yeah, uh, yeah, okay, and so then uh, he these charges go forward, and he th- there's right. some more... Right, and basically the charges that, just as a summary, the charges that they uh, basically try him on um, are there's a huge Republican donor in Alabama who's incredibly hated. Um, so they decide that, you know, by, at least from the accounts I've heard from both sides, both Republican and Democrat, that... The prosecution decides that, you know, in order to not look like they're being, you know, only hunting down Democrats, they find this really unpopular Republican donor, and they go after him. And what happened was there was a state lottery that the governor um, was trying to push forward in order to uh, fund education in Alabama. It it wasn't his campaign. it, It was a campaign that he signed on to that was being run by a whole group of people, and he was like the, you know, the official spokesperson. He would go and hold, you know, uh, give speeches and hold talks and whatnot. Didn't make any money off of it. Nothing, you know, there was no money going into his own private campaign, political campaign and whatnot. But anyway, this this Republican donor by the name of uh, Richard Scrushy donated $500,000 to this lottery campaign, which isn't, Don Siegelman's campaign. Don Siegelman didn't in any way profit or have any money go to him. Mm-hmm. And so what's interesting is they're try, you know, they charge him on charges of bribery, um, but they can't prove that he in any way got any money. But this is the best they had with those seven charges. And so that's what they went to trial with. And he was eventually convicted, but there were some shenanigans in the actual trial, right? Okay, well, now we have to rewind again to okay. the 
to the 2002 um, election, the, the, the day he concedes, I believe it's November 18th, um, and now we're, this is according to a Republican whistleblower who was doing opposition research for the Republican um, candidate, Bob Riley, okay? So this is coming from a whistleblower inside that campaign. Basically, uh, what she alleges, her name is Dana Jill Simpson, is that the, the day that um, Siegelman concedes, they hold a, the Riley camp holds a phone, call, a phone conference. And on the call is Billy Canary, who is on the campaign of Bob Riley. And remember, the husband of the U.S. attorney, right? It's very complicated. <laughs> <laughs> and other other folks are on this call. And they basically, this is in 2002, say, um, they're, they're discussing how to deal with Don Siegelman. And Bill, according to Simpson, Billy Canary says, um, the, you know, my girls will take care of him, meaning his wife, who is a U.S. attorney, and the other U.S. attorney, Alice Martin, yeah. will take care of him. And the other thing that they say during this call is that um, they'll get Judge Fuller to to hang him. Um, now, Judge Fuller was, you know, was um, not yet a federal judge. So shortly after the 2002 election, William Pryor, the Alabama attorney, uh, uh, Attorney General goes, uh, you know, is appointed, nominated, and installed on recess to the Eleventh Circuit, and then uh, Judge Fuller is, you know, pulled up onto a federal judgeship, and sure enough, he gets the case, you know, in 2005, um, and he doesn't recuse himself, despite these allegations and other issues that have to do with his, uh, you know. Uh, public statements about Don Siegelman. He doesn't recuse himself. So you've got a dirty judge, by all accounts. Yeah. You've got a dirty U.S. attorney and her husband, whose client is the Republican candidate. And, uh, you know, I, I, this is obviously a criminal conspiracy. I don't know what else to call it, but... Right, and if we heard about this going on in, in some third-world country, we would be rightly horrified and say, you know, this is not any form of justice. Right, and so it, it's, it's so surreal, because what happens during this trial is that um, jurors who normally would be dismissed for their views, and you're doing jury selection, you know, you interview each juror, and you decide if they're, you know, uh, someone who should be on the trial jury. And you have one juror who, for example, is asked whether he thinks the Republican donor, Scrooge, who uh, gave the $500,000 to the uh, education lottery, you know, whether he's guilty. And he says, yes, he's guilty. And so the judge lets him stay on the, on the jury. Um, so you have some <laughs> things like that. You have evidence that isn't allowed to be released um, to the defense, or you have suppressed evidence that, the de- you know, you have these bizarre things going on, but I think the most bizarre and the most questionable is at some point during the trial, a juror informs the judge that two jurors, one of them being the one who, who already said that Scrooge was guilty, are exchanging emails during the trial with each other and who knows who else. And the judge doesn't care. So you've got clear, clear um, evidence of jury tampering, and they let that go. Yeah, this is this is shocking. It, it's it's horrible, and uh, yeah, the, the um, 
this is Out the Rabbit Hole, KUCI and Irvine. I'm Robert Larson, and we're speaking today with Larissa Alexandrovna, and we're talking about her uh, story, her series she's been writing uh, for rawstory.com. It's the Permanent Republican Majority. And yeah, th- this is, I, I just keep repeating that it's a shocking story, and you, you just think, wow, this is going on in the United States, and for this to happen to any citizen would be bad, but it's happening to a person who's a former governor that you think with that level of of uh, visibility that, that this couldn't happen, but, well, but it wait, did. Well, wait, it gets even worse. Uh, I because... know. Go, go ahead. Tell us. <laughs> <laughs> because... Right after his sentencing, and he gets his hor- he gets an extreme sentence of seven years, four months, and he's not allowed out on appeal during his sentence uh, during his appeal. I mean, he's not out- allowed out of jail during his appeal, and he's disappeared right out of the courtroom and taken all over the place. He goes to prisons in Alabama, New York, wherever, and his attorneys are being told that he's in a, in a prison in Texas. It's the most bizarre thing, and. As a result of this, 44 um, state attorney generals, which is unheard of, for 44 people to agree on anything, let alone 44 Republican and Democrats <laughs> to agree on anything, is you know astounding. Send a letter to Congress demanding an investigation. So Congress decides to call this whistleblower, this J- Dana Jill Simpson, who m- made the allegations of that conference call in which this this plot was hatched. Well, her house gets burnt down, and she's run off the road. Of course, that's just coincidence, but seriously. I mean, now we're talking um, arson, and we're talking assuming these events are connected, and I, you would have to be insane to think that they're not. Yeah. Um, so now we're talking arson and attempted murder, okay? So, again, still, the only people covering this story are me and Harper's magazine, uh, Scott Horton at Harper's, are basically on it. And Time Time uh, did uh, a nice expose, and uh, the New York Times did two editorials demanding an investigation. But beyond that, in terms of investigating the story, it, it's really just me and Harper's, and I'm thinking, what is going on here? This should be wall-to-wall news. Right, so no uh, national broadcast media has touched this at all. Well, wait. Um, after I started my series, um, Dan Abrams on MSNBC did um, did a show on it. Okay. But aside from him, no one, no one has even mentioned it. It does not exist. That... And I can't believe I'm astounded. You know, we're talking about uh, this is so much worse than Watergate that I don't even understand how this is not news. This should be 24/7 news. You've got an American citizen in jail. You've got another American citizen whose house is burnt down and has run off the road. And other things are going on that I, I'm not at liberty to discuss. And, and what, this isn't newsworthy? How is this not newsworthy? And so um, that's the – and we're, you and I are just now only discussing the first installment of my series. We haven't even gotten into <laughs> – <laughs> right, and again, that's uh, com. the permanent Republican majority. Um, check that out. And again, the graphs you have there, that helps people put it together more. It, it is a convoluted story, but it's 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 real. It's, it's important. People need to know about this. And um, <clears throat> Larissa, uh, there's so many different ways we could go into this, and we only have a limited amount of time today. Can we maybe go into how this ties in with the uh, U.S. attorney's firing scandal? 
Sure. Well, um, some of it I can't get into because I'm still on this story and investigating that angle, but some of it I can. The real question is, let's put aside the attorneys who were fired and look at the attorneys who remained. Why did they remain? You've got two U.S. attorneys in Alabama who are conducting themselves in an unethical and likely criminal manner, and they're, they remained. While you have other U.S. attorneys who wouldn't um, conduct themselves in this type of manner who were let go. The ones who were let go are gone, and consider how many are left. That's a problem. We have to look at each U.S. attorney and see why they remained, why were they chosen and then allowed to remain, what did they do that was right according to this administration, because that's what concerns me. Mm-hmm. If you have U.S. attorneys who are behaving in, in this fashion, and I might add that in Mississippi you had an, ex, an exact same circumstance, and another case, I don't want to you know, confuse people, but you had an exact same story as to the Don Siegelman story with a uh, Mississippi Supreme Court justice they were trying to remove. They tried, they tried to, uh, they indicted him and tried him twice, and twice he was acquitted. And they finally let it go. Thank God in that case, you had, you know, he was a very visible, prominent member of the judiciary, and so they couldn't, I guess, find enough of a biased judge. Yeah, <laughs> you know, but right. you, you had a case like that in, in Mississippi. And, again, that's not the only case. So you're talking about possibly a conspiracy to remove political opponents via the Justice Department through false prosecution. Not selective prosecution, because that implies that they're favoring um, one party, uh, prosecuting one party uh, crimes versus another. Um, we're talking about prosecution in which the evidence is, is almost entirely fabricated or cherry-picked and constructed in such a way as to, you know, basically frame the person. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and it's so often these things seem to be coming up right before elections in order to sort of taint it and sway sway the election so that the, even right. if the person is never convicted, he's just made to look bad as Siegelman w- was done. And you're making the same point that Greg Pallast has been making, that people make a mistake if they focus on the attorney's who were fired in the, this scandal, and you need to look at the ones who stayed in their jobs, because the ones that were fired seem to be, as uh, Iglesias is saying, that because they wouldn't play ball. So Right, does and what, what does Iglesias say? Why, why, what did they want them to play ball with? They wanted them to prosecute Democrats. And Iglesias was investigating uh, a Democrat, but couldn't... There was no case. And the Republicans uh, were... You know, well, I don't say all Republicans, but some Republicans were concerned that uh, he wasn't making a case. That's why he was fired. Yeah. So, yeah. It, it, so we have a very serious problem here when a U.S. attorney is acting as a political machine in a democracy, because that's no longer a democracy. That's you know, I'm from the Soviet Union, so believe me when I tell you that that's what happens and happened in the Soviet Union. You were disappeared into a monkey trial or kangaroo court and sent, you know, uh, disappeared for reconditioning um, by, you know, the state mechanism. And if that's where we're at, then, uh, you know, I have to wonder why no one seems to care. And the reason I focus so much on the Siegelman case is that it is such a perfect example because 
it, there's enough evidence to clearly illustrate just how corrupt this has become. You know, in other cases, it's a little bit more murky, but here you have absolute evidence on every level that something is terribly wrong. Yeah, you, you are so right about that. Larissa, have you ever felt threatened or anything working on this story? I, I don't discuss stuff like that. I'm okay. sorry. <laughs> okay, no, I, I understand, and I just thought I'd throw that out there because it just seems like everybody else I involved. will say that I've had um, concerns, certainly for my sources, who um, are, you know, of makeup both Republican and Democrat, and who I've, you know, been in contact in various ways with uh, for a little while, and consistently who have either completely stopped talking to me or have pretty much told me uh, to my face that they've never talked to me before. They didn't know who I was. Okay. Well, that that's, that's, gives me something to go on. I, I applaud your courage, everything you're doing on this and trying to bring out the truth. And uh, uh, now, so uh, Don Siegelman, he's sitting in prison now. Uh, right. And now, is there—Congress is looking into this now? Isn't there some investigation? Well, they, they claim to be, but I don't think they're acting quickly enough. Because in my opinion, there's enough evidence to, first of all, first and foremost, remove these two U.S. attorneys in Alabama immediately. Whatever else they're doing, these two U.S. attorneys must be removed immediately. That's first. And they have yet to do that. They're still investigating, and— in my opinion, um, how much more information do you need? We've got records. We've got witnesses of both parties. We've got uh, people being harassed, their houses being burnt down, people being threatened. Um, I think that's enough reason to, at the very least, remove these two U.S. attorneys. But they have yet to do that. They're investigating. We're in a serious crisis. I don't know what's happening to Congress. Is it possible, you know, I've considered is it possible to... Um, these kinds of tactics are being used to manipulate Congress. I don't know. Who in Congress should uh, our listeners contact to uh, say that they want more done about this? Uh, they should contact uh, the House Judiciary Committee. Okay. Uh, so Chairman Conyers and any member on the House Judiciary Committee, as well as the Senate Judiciary Committee, um, should be contacted. But also I would urge them to contact the mainstream press. Um, the three major newspapers in Alabama are owned by uh, a man who's very close to uh, the now governor, Bob Riley, the, the man who uh, beat, I guess, is <laughs> unfairly. <laughs> Quote, uh, unquote. Beat, um, Don Siegelman is very close to him. And so um, the coverage in, in those three publications, when they cover it, is really questionable. I've never seen such such bad reporting. I mean, to the point where it's like prop, it is propaganda. And yeah, it's so like I the would old urge Hearst newspapers. To contact um, members of the mainstream press and demand that they cover the story. Um, so, yeah, New York Times, LA Times, CNN, well, ABC. Well, you know, New York Times has done editorials, yeah. but where are their investigators? Right. So. Tell them that they need to get some extra investigation going on there. But uh, and you know, I, I just urge everybody to to go to rawstory.com and and I 
it really it's my favorite news website and oh, I'm I, glad thank you I, I get so much out of there and, and you know you links to other great stories and your own work and so uh, can we we don't have a lot of time left can I just want to go into this because it's peculiar and, and odd and interesting this thing these allegations about Karl Rove and how that he would meet with people on street corners and not talk on telephone. Could you go into that little thing there? Sure, sure. A a good friend of mine, um, Jim Moore, wrote a book called Bush's Brain, which I'm sure everyone's heard of by now. Yeah. But he wrote a second book, which was pretty much um, pushed off all, you know, radar that most people have never read called The Architect. In The Architect, he had a witness to a meeting between uh, Jack Abramoff, the disgraced and corrupt lobbyist, and Carl Rove on a street corner. And according to that account, uh, the reason was because Carl Rove didn't want logs or uh, phone records uh, of any meetings he had with operatives of any sort. Well, you know, that was just one witness. So at that point, you know, it was difficult to claim, you know, it could have been a one-time thing. We, We honestly didn't know. But as I was investigating the Siegelman story, it turned out that, Bob Riley's campaign operatives were meeting regularly with Rove on street corners for the very same reason. And moreover, before Bob Riley was the official Republican candidate in Alabama, uh, during the primary, uh, they were supporting another candidate uh, called uh, by the name of uh, Steve Windham. Uh, what I mean by that is that the RNC was supporting Steve Windham. And Steve Windham's operatives also met with Carl Rove on street corners. So now you have three different, you know, accounts from two different, well, I, I wouldn't say um, Abramoff is a state, but certainly from a state and a national level. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've got p- folks meeting with, a, you know, a White House aide to the president with the highest security clearances on street corners. Then you have to ask, you know, all those deleted emails that were used uh, I don't know if you if you recall the the email scandal with yes. the GWB43 account that they were using mm-hmm. as, as opposed to the you know White House um, communications email servers and whatnot and their claim was that they were trying to avoid violating the Hatch Act right and Carl Rove used the GWU43 account 95% of the time Yet all these emails have disappeared, and again, the the, the explanation is we didn't want to violate the Hatch Act, which prohibits uh, public officers from using public resources on public time for political activities. Well, Karl Rove is exempt from the Hatch Act, so why does he need to go on street corners and and avoid phone calls and use a... Uh, GWB43 email account if he's exempt from the Hatch Act. So this obviously kind of rolls into this, continues to roll into this entire scandal where the White House is being used, the, the Department of Justice is being used, basically federal resources and departments are being used as political tools. And evidence of that is is buried in, in a political uh, server somewhere. 
Yeah, and, and this is just more evidence against the corrupt nature of, of Karl Rove. But this was just odd to me. This funny almost this thing where they would Rove would tell these people two different people uh, report this. Meet me on the street corner, and when they would go to the no, street, three different people. Oh yeah, and when they would go to the street corner, he would actually be in in the intersection. Well, uh, on one account, he was in an intersection waving. Uh, other accounts have him, you know, he would say, meet me on the corner of, you know, this and that, A and B. And they'd show up, and he would be there, just standing there. <laughs> Senior aide to the president, high security clearances, standing on the street corner. You tell me what, what he needed to do that required that kind of ridiculous meeting uh in fact, why couldn't he have invited people over to his house for dinner or gone to a restaurant, <laughs> right? I mean, let's assume for a minute that what he's doing is, is entirely political, but, but legal, legit. Then why not simply, uh, after hours or whatnot or during lunch, you know, meet with whomever at various restaurants, coffee house, your own house. Why a street corner for a short amount of time and then you know, go your separate ways? That's what's really alarming. And I think if, if Congress wanted to, they could subpoena the, um, you know, there's cameras in Washington, D.C., of streets and such. They could probably subpoena those videos and see just how many people he met <laughs> and how often uh, on these street corners. Because doesn't that seem a little suspicious to you? Yes, it certainly does. Larissa, I'm sorry we're out of time. Uh, I will, you know, it's such a, a big story. There's so much to get into, and we've just touched it. And I hope, I hope we've piqued everybody's interest. And go to rawstory.com, check out the permanent Republican majority, Larissa Alexandrovna. And you, uh, you're, uh, you have a blog page, uh, at largely.com. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's my personal blog. Okay, but they can find out more about you and what you do. Sure, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, but rawstory.com, the permanent Republican majority. Larissa Alexandrovna, thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you. Okay, we'll talk to you again sometime. Yes. Okay, bye now. All right, yes, Larissa Alexandrovna, the permanent Republican majority. Check out that series at rawstory.com. I've got to close out the show early today because we have a basketball broadcast coming up. And I'll just say uh, check me uh, next week, uh, uh, out the rabbit hole, 4 to 5 on Thursday again. Uh, my guest is going to be, there's an amazing page. Uh, it's, it's actually a MySpace page. It's called Corporations Ate My Baby, and it's full of so much good information and insights. And, and the guy behind that page is going to be my guest, and it's going to be a, a really fantastic fantastic show so catch that next week and okay so i am going to close out here robert larson uh saying uh, the opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of the kuci staff or management or the uc board of regents and you can uh, give me some feedback at rg larson at kuci.org or uh, myspace.com slash out the rabbit hole and uh Uh, I guess that's it. KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. Also on the web at KUCI.org. I'm going to go to a little music here in about 10 minutes. We'll have basketball uh, up for you. Anteaters basketball.